1: This is the RGU On Stage Podcast. I'm Lauren Van Hamert, your host, and on today's episode, I'm chatting with Jesse Gephardt and Susan Stedman. Today's podcast is divided into two parts, two conversations with two theater makers who couldn't be more different. But the commonality that ties the two together is the subject of representation, both on stage and in the theater industry. First up, I'm chatting with Jesse Gephardt, who is directing the upcoming Theater Raleigh production of Doug Wright's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, I Am My Own Wife. Based on a true story and inspired by interviews conducted by the playwright over several years, this play tells the story of Charlotta von Malsdorf, who managed to survive both the Nazi onslaught and the repressive East German communist regime while living openly as a transgender woman. More than that, though, the play explores the tension of what is true, Versus our version of the truth.
2: The play is about a woman that the playwright is trying to write a play about. So it has its own kind of view of her. And we wanted to make sure that we were being true to her. And not trying to color her or present her in a way that it was inauthentic. But also to acknowledge and accept that the framing of the play is not necessarily who she was either. You know, Doug Wright's impression of her was not necessarily who she was that we know of because a lot of her history is not able to be corroborated. So you just have to take her word for it, which is inherently a problematic way of documenting someone's history. You just have to believe what they tell you.
1: Let's talk about Doug. He bases play on letters and conversations with her while she was still alive. And in one of the letters he wrote to her, he said, I grew up gay in the Bible Belt. I can only begin to imagine what it must have been like during the Third Reich. He was born in Texas. Do you connect to this play because you are a gay man who has spent your formative years here in the South?
2: I I mean, I, I don't know if there was a time where I have, like, really thought about my growing up and how it relates to this. I think it's more about that shared knowledge of being inherently different and how you move through the journey of coming into yourself and who is with you along the way to help you. Like, Charlotta has Tante Louise. She went to go stay with her Tante Louise, and she was trying on her clothes and was caught by her, and her aunt's response was, do you know that nature played a joke on us? You were supposed to be born a woman, and I was supposed to be born a man. And then she gives her the... The Magnus Hirschfeld book, *De Transvestiten, about transvestism. That moment in Charlotte's life could have gone in such a different way, but it didn't, right? So, and I think that Doug, I'm sure, ex- has experienced things similar to that when you have that flash of recognition in yourself or others have about you, and then how you journey into your, your grown upness, as it were. So yeah, I mean I think that's a that's a identifying trait that that I can really latch on to that idea.
1: Typically gay characters are sidekicks, supporting characters, the butt of the joke. Why is representation on stage so important and why does a play like this one matter?
2: You know, if if the the purpose of theater is to hold a mirror up to society, it helps if what you see in the reflection is connectable and relatable to your own experience. To see yourself reflected on screen or stage allows you to know that you are maybe not quite as other as you feel or as others make you feel. In this play, in particular, one of the good things about it is that it is representation of a trans character without all of the tragedy that generally can surround queer characters, um, you know, like she doesn't have AIDS and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't die horrific deaths. She's not murdered or anything like that. You know, there is validity to those stories because those stories exist and those stories are very much like a part of the queer history. But you get to see a character, trans woman, who, I mean, she made it. She created her own existence. She, she fought for her life to be what it was. And, and came out on top really that is a an interesting part of this play for me is that you know it, it it gives you the representation of queer character without all of the all of the the dirty trappings that sometimes come with them
1: and and that and maybe that's as important as those other stories are to tell maybe that's the kind of stories we need to see more of
2: and they're being and they're happening you know it's slow but they're they're happening I mean you know there are There are movies and TVs, shows and there are characters existing that are being written now that are more mainstream and being allowed to exist like the movie Booksmart that just came out. There's the the, you know, her sidekick friend is a lesbian. And the great one of the great parts of about her storyline is that we don't have to go through her whole coming out coming to terms like we meet her and she's already there so what we get is her journey into first love and you know first infatuation or whatever and so and that's an interesting that's a super relatable story like not that coming out is not but that story's been told a number of times a number of ways and but what we got in book smart was this this queer character being able to fall in love or fall in lust and go through those motions which a lot of or a lot of the queer characters of past are not written to be.
1: I don't want to digress too much, but we have to talk about Be More Chill. It's closing on Broadway in August. They just announced that, and Interact is producing it, and you're directing it in October. So talk to me about the uniqueness of getting handed a script to direct when the show is still running on Broadway, and how you're... Hoping to approach the material,
2: it's very exciting to be have the opportunity to direct it while it was on, you know, while it was just on Broadway, because that doesn't happen. And you know, the the royalty holder, you know, the the producers, they don't they don't do that. That's not a thing they do. So it's really unprecedented for them to allow these theaters to produce this play. It's so unapologetically. Quirky and strange, while also documenting this moment in life of you know high school and trying, wanting to be cool and wanting to feel like you fit in, while documenting that really kind of eloquently, you know, like it is, and you know it's very sci-fi and that I really like that. And I, 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 I am anticipating a lot of people will probably come out to audition. I hope that they will, but I think that this the talent in this area is is ready for a show like this.
1: Are audiences in this area ready for a show like this?
2: Yes yeah I would say yes I mean the show's trajectory onto Broadway was mostly in part to you know the teenaged demographic I mean they found this show and carried this show all the way to New York and when it had basically just been i mean it was petered out i mean you know people were i think doing it a little bit but it wasn't this mammoth thing that it became because of that it is geared towards a certain demographic of of theater goer it's not to say that adults won't find things in it that are fun i mean the music is great you know there the dancing is going to be great but the story is one that really like hits home to a younger demographic So yeah, I mean, I would say they're ready. I mean, this show isn't any more strange than like Rocky Horror or Reefer Madness or anything like that.
1: You're an actor and you've directed some really great shows here, most recently Godspell, which was beautiful at Theater in the Park. How does your being an actor help your directing?
2: I believe that directors who act um, or actors who direct have an inherent upper hand, and that's not to disqualify directors who don't act or actors who don't direct or whatever, um, because I have worked with very talented directors who don't act. From my perspective, I know what they're going through, the actors. I know what it's like to be up there. I know what it's like... Um, to have to do the same thing over and over and over again in a rehearsal. I know what it's like to, you know, fight for the lines or fight for the note or the whatever. I feel like I have that common ground with them and it helps me to speak to them and guide them in a way that I, I understand. And it also allows me, I feel like it allows me to say things like, I get it, I hear you it has to be like this, or it really needs to be like this. So like, I know you can do it, but I get that you're struggling. And I acknowledge that and accept that. However, we can't stop working. And I have also been known to say, I'm not going to let you put up a bad show. I know that sometimes it can feel like, oh my God, are we ever going to get there? Trust me, we're going to get there. It's going to be fine. So I, I feel like my toolbox is equipped with ways to speak to actors because I'm familiar with being an actor
1: i want to circle back around to i am my own wife in diving into this play have you learned anything from this character what has she taught you and what do you hope audiences will learn from her
2: charlotta will teach you that you can make it adversity doesn't have to get the best of you. And if you live your life openly and unapologetically, you will be fulfilled. All that to say that it does not mean that she was a perfect person, but she seemed to have it figured out. I th- hope that the audiences will recognize her magnetism, and I just hope that they would f- I hope that they will find her story as well as the story of the creation of the play to be riveting, which I think that it is. And I think that it translates because it is a one person show, you know, that you have to fight the traps of that. You know, you don't want it to be, you don't want it to feel monotonous. You know, you just have the one person with a, with a very simple costume that's not really going to change that much. Um, so how do you support a two hour long play so, I think watching the transition and the the journey and the um, the skill that that David brings to it, I think will will also be something that that audiences really enjoy watching David tell the story.
1: David Henderson stars in the theater Raleigh production of I Am My Own Wife. The show opens July 10th at the Kennedy Theater in downtown Raleigh. He will be taking over our RDU On Stage Instagram stories sometime during opening weekend and giving us a backstage pass to this show. Be sure to follow us on social media at RDU On Stage so you don't miss it. As Jesse mentioned during our interview, for Charlotta, her truth was steeped in her stories. The same might be said of my next guest, whose truth can be found in her plays. Susan Stedman is a playwright based in Wilmington, who has spent a lot of time researching and writing about feminism and the theater. Fifteen of her plays have either been produced or published, and she's directed over 70 productions. Her 10-minute play, Anti-Materialism, can be seen at the upcoming NC 10x10 Festival, which runs July 11th through July 20th. Here she is talking about the process of constructing a play with a
3: predetermined
1: time constraint and cutting straight to the core.
3: In the full-length play, you have time to lay the groundwork, and not necessarily at the beginning of the play. I mean, look at Oedipus Rix prior events unfold as the play goes forward, it also goes backward. Um, And in the full length, you can develop relationships more slowly. But in the 10-minute play, this getting to the core approach and finding its conclusion is both exciting and inhibiting. The audience enjoys a slice of your imagination. If the characters stay with the audience, the writer has accomplished something. But what I love personally about the 10-minute play is editing, deleting. I love to get rid of absolutely everything that doesn't have to be there and just wind up with this little 10-minute gem. Can you walk me through
1: your writing process? How do you take that germ of an idea in your head and get to a finished product, or is it ever finished?
3: Process ever finished? No, probably not. But there comes a point when I physically push myself away from the computer table. Luckily, my chair has wheels and make the decision to submit the script and see what happens. But okay, my process, I just let the words flow. I, 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 it could be garbage that's coming out, or what I prefer to think, throw it in. But I don't inhibit myself by critiquing as I go. Sometimes the play. Is not what I imagined it was going to be, and sometimes the characters say and do something other than what I've decided for them. This sounds mystical, I know, but I've spoken to many other playwrights who experience the the same thing. The other situation I encounter is I try to write one play and end up with something altogether different. For one thing, when I'm even when I'm trying to be serious, the humor crops up. I'm not complaining about it, but it just is such, I guess, an innate part of me that I can't clamp it down. Another situation I encounter is if I try to write one play and I end up with something altogether different. Years ago, I was just getting back into writing and I was writing a 10-minute play for a competition in the Atlanta area and it was supposed to be set in the backyard. I had this terribly creative idea about two women from two different centuries who were in a backyard writing, and they wouldn't see or hear each other at first. But I couldn't move it forward. And I thought to myself, my well, mate as well have been writing about aliens. And then I said, that's it. So this was the birth of a play called Much, Much Later. In this play, aliens from an overcrowded planet land on Earth. Uh, Earth has lost its population entirely due to war, to uh, neglect of ecological issues, overpopulation. So the aliens try to make sense of a planet based on the objects they find in the backyard, like a naked Barbie doll. And one of them says, no reproductive organs, no wonder the race died out. So they have a very misshapen idea of what the Earth had been like.
1: So do you hear these characters kind of talking to you in your head or speaking to you in your head?
3: Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I think the characters characters go straight from an idea to my fingertips while I'm typing and don't even pass through my head. I just imagine they're in the situation and what their relationship is and what they have to do, I guess. And again, this is standard playwriting, standard acting. What do you want to accomplish? How are you gonna accomplish it? What conflicts will be in your way? Uh, and then you you work together, the character and the author work together to get to this goal.
1: And your play, Anti-Materialism, that's premiering at the NC 10x10 Festival. So tell me what this one's about and how you interpreted the festival's theme of fortune to construct this piece.
3: Well, as far as plot goes, an ecologically minded woman in her 20s is at a thrift store where she's looking for the perfect wedding dress. And she's by, accompanied by her pregnant older sister. However, her strong-willed, immaculately groomed mother shows up. And while they're not really negative towards each other, you know that there's a tremendous rift between what one thinks you should do for a wedding and what the other one thinks. She also finds that she has this immediate rapport with the thrift store employee, Josh, and that he is as far from her fiancé, boyfriend, as she can imagine. What it's about is something else. It's about the conflict between what you think you should do and the world's pressure to conform to societal norms. It's about being open to new experiences that challenge your previous decisions.
1: In your work, you spend a lot of time documenting feminist drama, theater, performance, and even in your book, present a feminist challenge for revisioning the way in which we teach practice and represent our culture. In your findings, how has feminist drama evolved? And are we now experiencing some sort of cultural shift in the theater where women or might be getting close to standing as an equal to men?
3: I do think we're making progress in the last five years or so, but I don't have the statistics to back up my belief. I know what I read in the Dramatist Guild um, bi-monthly magazine, there's a much greater focus on women and particularly feminist uh, plays out in the greater community. Early feminist theater, as I researched for my book, tended to be produced by feminist groups, which really makes a lot of sense. How were these groups going to find their way onto more prominent stages when their work was looked at not only as political, but as very experimental? Which leads me to another point, that the early feminist plays were rarely in a realistic mode, and in fact, a major question, excuse me, was whether a realistic play could even be a feminist play. When I spoke to
1: Lauren Gunderson about this, she said that she feels women are really the moral beacon of the theater because the way in which women look at the world and interpret what's happening in our society, not just in the United States, but globally, Those are, that's an important story, that's an important viewpoint to tell in the theater.
3: Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think it's because the way that an individual brings together a a whole kind of uh, aura that is composed of sympathetic parts, that feminist plays are just by nature political plays, and there is just so much to be said, that the feminist approach is kind of seeping into the mainstream I wish I could do more than seep I wish I could pound it but but I'll take seeping for now
1: you mentioned the Dramatists guild and and your membership and, and you know you've been a longtime member of the Dramatists guild that organization is truly committed to exposing and eliminating systemic biases in all aspects of the theater in your career Especially maybe early in your career, did you experience sexism or bias in trying to present work for the stage or create work for the stage?
3: You know, I experienced more bias as a director than as a playwright. I am sure that my plays, uh, I'm thinking of one particularly a 10-minute play that is the only 10-minute play I ever read that hadn't found a home other than a stage reading because it deals with humanism instead of traditional, you know, religious-based ideals. I've always been tempted when I send my plays out to use initials rather than Susan, but I decided not to. I really wanted to feel the climate. The Dramatist field was doing a fantastic job, and what I really appreciate is that um, the magazine introduces newer newer playwrights who otherwise might not have had recognition outside of their geographic sphere. In the 1980s, I had a young family, and I wasn't teaching. I was starting to write plays. I was working on my book, and I was editing to make some money. And I conducted a survey of Ohio community theater women directors, and it's a, a very bizarre and little-known statistical approach that I picked up in grad school. The results were not surprising at all. The more expensive the production, the less likely it was that women were heading it. the so, that's my personal experience. As far as being discriminated because, uh, against because I'm a woman, I don't know, how do you know? If you're sending your play to a theater that's 2,000 miles away, maybe your play just isn't good enough. But if you keep track of what's being done on in regional theater, uh, you have a better sense that women's plays and feminist tinged plays are having much much wider viewing than ever before.
1: Last summer, I interviewed Mo Gaffney, and and she is a longtime feminist like you are, and she fought the you know she fought early in the women's movement in the 1960s. She was on the on the you know ground level of of that movement as you were. One of her pet peeves was that young women today just have no idea about the history <laughs> of the women's movement. What would you like this younger generation to know about the, the groundwork that women like you laid? And how can feminist drama help tell that story?
3: I don't think the current generation of women have experienced being silenced the way that some of us older women may have, but as you mentioned, there are collections of works by women going back to the 70s. I think that should be required reading for young feminists. It could be the only way they viscerally experience what the fight was about. The plays are a window on that world. and rewrote those plays. And we managed somehow to get the plays performed, but not on Broadway, certainly, and not on major stages. So what were our concerns then? Are they different now? Are we still fighting the old battles? I think reading the plays helps a young feminist situate herself in this ongoing fight.
1: The NC 10x10 10 10 Festival begins July 11th in Carborough. More information on that can be found in the episode notes. If you like what you've heard today, please consider subscribing to the podcast, follow us on social media at Stage or visit us online at www.rduonstage.com. Until next week, I'll see you at the theater.